it, it was interesting that um, the colleagues that I connect with on a regular basis were, were not only just surviving, they were identifying problems and proposing solutions for their entire learning cultures. The, the phrase that came up over and over again was, we were the glue. and welcome to season four of the Future Ready Librarian podcast series, Leading from the Library. This is a podcast for all librarians, wherever you are in your journey. It is filled with amazing guests, important topics, and engaging conversations that will inspire, engage, and support all of us as Future Ready Librarians. I am your host, Shannon McClintock-Miller. I am the District Teacher Librarian at Van Meter Community School in Van Meter, Iowa, and serve as the Future Ready Librarian spokesperson. I have the pleasure of working within my school and library community and also others around the country and world through Future Ready Librarian events, conferences, consulting, writing, and more. And I am very honored to bring these voices and all of the work of others to our podcast and to each one of you. Today, I'm very excited though, as we wrap up season four, to welcome my dear friend, Joyce Valenza to our podcast as we recap the last two years and talk about what we can do to celebrate in the world of libraries and education. So welcome to our podcast, Joyce. Thanks, Shannon. It's great to be here. I know, I'm so feels excited. just like our usual chats. <laughs> exactly. I know when I asked Joyce to come on, I couldn't think of a better way to wrap up season four than to invite you to come because we are always having these great conversations. And I thought that all of you would like to be in on them too. <laughs> <laughs> Okie doke. <laughs> I know, I can't wait. So let's just start by having you introduce yourself and tell a little bit about your background and the work that you do. Okay, thanks, Shannon. Um, I had been um, a special librarian with the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia at the very beginning of my career, actually indexed books for University of Pennsylvania Press. I was with the um, Free Library of Philadelphia for 11 years. And at some point I decided I wanted to be a school librarian. And so I worked in two lovely high schools. I was an elementary librarian for a short while um, in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. And uh, after 25 years as a school librarian, I uh, was asked to go to Rutgers as a faculty member, and there I am now an associate professor in the LIS program, and I also coordinate the school library program there at Rutgers. Oh, amazing. I know when I, I have to tell everybody about my first interaction with Joyce was at a conference when I first became a librarian and in the fall I heard her speak at a conference and knew at that moment that I had found like who I wanted to be and what I wanted to be like as a librarian and so Joyce and I go way back to the beginning of my career and now just watching when you have your students when I join your classes and just watching the importance of that that mentorship I think as we 
talk about things to celebrate. Like that's one of the best things about our community, right? In, in being a librarian is how we just embrace, I think everyone and how we, we want everyone to do just, you know, an amazing job within their library. And that's something that's so important to us. Yes, Shannon, I think what is very interesting to me is that didn't exist when I entered the field. Um, in, in the um, 80s, um, we really weren't able to connect. We were the, the one-ofs in our buildings. Uh, and while we were writing books that each other could read, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine a time before networks. It's hard to imagine a time before podcasts. It's hard to imagine a time before we could easily get out a tweet, share a link, um, or, or a discovery that we've made, or to collaborate globally on books and um, and and other such things. It's just, it's amazing how far we've come in being able to support and mentor each other, and we take that for granted sometimes. I think. I know that I think that's one of the neat parts. Like as we go into the summer, I was talking to one of my friends this morning about that on how much it's changed because now we can even stay connected and read what we're reading or share what we're working on. And I think that's one of the neatest things just about our community. And so it's neat to have you on as my first mentor to you as we talk about this. <laughs> Thanks. And so just imagine how many people you're mentoring with these podcasts and all the other work that you do. Um, no, that's it's, exciting. It's pretty wonderful. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I love it. So let's get to the conversation. And I know that you just gave a presentation in Pennsylvania, right? At the conference mm -hmm. and yeah. spoke around these topics. And so I'm excited for everyone just to hear about the things that you spoke about within your presentation. Yeah, we've, um, this has been a, a, per, a, a very turbulent period, and it also has been a period during which librarians have, have stood up and taken leadership roles and, and seized certain opportunities. Um, and so at the, the talk I was doing, um, I was calling it weathering the storms. I didn't want to focus on the storms, but I did want to focus on how, how we might weather them. Um, so we can have some conversations around these things, but, you know, the, what I saw happening was, you know, people could consider this sort of thing, a perfect storm, but um, it, it was interesting that um, the colleagues that I connect with on a regular basis were, were not only just surviving, they were identifying problems and proposing solutions for their entire learning cultures. And uh, they were leading in times of, of real hardship. Uh, so COVID was one of those. Uh, and what we saw was librarians in, in the, uh, some of the research we did um, in New Jersey, we saw librarians really, um, the, the, the phrase that came up over and over again was we were the glue. We, mm -hmm. we were ready with, um, in most cases, we were ready with digital resources. We knew how to create websites. We knew how to communicate digitally with all of our stakeholders. Um, we were distributing um, not only books and, and learning how to build 
um, our, our ebook and audiobook and all sorts of digital materials um, rapidly. We were able to scale that uh, in collaboration with our public library colleagues in many cases. Um, and we were also able to embed ourselves in learning management systems and embed our resources in the learning management systems so uh, classroom teachers could easily access this. And we were helping our classroom teacher colleagues in, in many cases build their own digital presence. We were communicating with parents. We were setting up websites for parents. And, and I know you did this and many other people. We were doing book deliveries, physical book deliveries, um, using our cars and bicycles and delivering to some homes. I, I was, I've been, you know, I saw so many heroic efforts. Um, so, so all of that right now, you know, um, templates are in place for us to continue our availability, our ubiquitous uh, um, access. Uh, and I, I don't think that's going to change. I think there, there has been this kind of collateral positive um, that has come out of this. Um, and, and I also see opportunities for us, you know, where we see the potential for a, a learning slide or a COVID learning slide. Um, I think this is another area where we can step up and find, find the solutions, identify the problems. So if assessments are happening this spring or have already happened this spring, talking to administrators uh, about the items on these assessments that our students have the most trouble with. If we learn about those before the next school year starts, we have an opportunity to prepare lessons or to help teachers prepare lessons to, to address those things um, and also address them on individual or small group basis, bases with um, the students who might need more support. I saw efforts to really beef up social and emotional learning, to make connections with kids that we perceived needed us most, um, and families that we see we saw needed us most. So, you know, I we did um, some focus groups and we did some surveys, but so much of this is anecdotal. Um, the other opportunity that I see that I don't know has been fully realized is you know, was this effort really recognized by our administrators? Did we write the right reports? Not just the number of books that may have circulated, but these stories that I'm only touching the tip of the iceberg on sharing, those stories have to be documented and at a local level uh, because they're really powerful. And, um, and I, think, I think that evidence is, uh, is very important to tell the story. And this isn't over. We're telling the story of two and a half years right now and, and, um, and potentially more. And so how do these successes get recognized and documented? So that, that's one of the things um, I was talking about in, in the talk, we had a lot of examples of this. Um, we're certainly dealing um, with book bans and, uh, and, and we're recognizing um, there have been a number of recent articles that, um, that some of the people who are looking at banning books in our schools um, are also looking at our digital resources and our databases. And, and these are, you know, of course, the, we're in some ways very 
um, transparent and, and also in some ways very vulnerable because our collections are quite open to the general public. So we, we're seeing this and this is a big deal. It, it's, it's, it's a, um, these are organized efforts by large groups of people, not necessarily local parents uh, and, not, and certainly not all of our parents. I mean, I think one of the things we have to recognize is that we love our parents and, and yes. we, you know, they have been supportive to us through our whole careers. And so we want to figure out how to, how to address these situations in, in, in positive ways and effective ways while we, we, we defend the rights of all children to access the books that one family shouldn't deter the, or, or in, inhibit the rights of other people in our communities from reading. And so we've seen, we've seen really important models. Last week, we saw um, a letter from 1300 or so award-winning authors uh, to the community um, talking about the damages that can be done when books are banned. We saw parents, so there's so many powerful videos of parents speaking up at school board meetings on behalf of their child, their own child's right to read. Um, we've seen um, really courageous librarians and I don't know that everybody, and I tell my, my students, I want them to stand up for our core values and I want them to stand up for, um, the right to read. And I also am concerned about their, their safety as or non-tenured or untenured new, new librarians. But, you know, happily we have the support of the Office for Intellectual Freedom and we have the support of all these documents that have been out there that offer us material selection models. And we have strong mentorship in, in some of the people who's, who are in a position where they can really speak up and lead. So in Texas, um, we have the freedom movement that has been nationally recognized and really pow powerful. Um, we have Becky and Carolyn and Nancy Joe, um, who just won um, an intellectual freedom award I read. Um, these are extraordinary models. And one of the things I'm also seeing, and I'm sure you're seeing it too, is that because of the teaching we've done, our kids are aware of what intellectual freedom looks like. They're also, they're also thinking critically about how they can behave as citizens. And so when they feel that their freedoms are encroached upon, I am seeing kids gather together and speak up at school board meetings. Um, some of the resources that you know I see in New Jersey really helped kids get together, understand how to make an impactful statement at a school board meeting. So Martha Hickson, for instance, put together these, and I know you've interviewed her in a podcast. She put together materials and so did other members of um, her advisory board. Among the things that were in there is when you speak at a board meeting, you get up, you make sure you, you practiced and researched your talk but you thank the school board for their volunteer service. You are polite, you present evidence and these students dug deeply into reviews and award lists and, and, uh, and statements about their own rights, presented an argument, three minute argument in a, in a way that um, they, it wasn't, they didn't actually say this, but what I saw was educators, especially librarians, 
have given them the skills that they needed mm-hmm. to, to speak up as adults, to, to speak up for their own rights. And so I see hope in this. I see the tide turning. I see, um, I see movements you know, going on in both sides. And I hope that we have conversations that allow you know, communities to mend. Um, so anyway, that's, that, that has been a storm. Yeah. And it's also been in some ways a celebration, understanding that our rights can be fragile and that we need to take action. We need policies in place. We need to know that our school boards and administrators understand the policies and are behind us. Um, so these conversations have been scary, damaging, and also healthy in, in, in terms that we've taken some leadership. And, and in, in some cases, I, I see tides turning um, and I, I see the entire organization of the American Library Association stepping up um, and, and building additional supports. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, there's this, we, we're living in what the World Health Organization calls an infodemic. They, there was misinformation, disinformation, malinformation out there relating to all sorts of things, including the pandemic. Um, and and we're, we're in the midst of, um, a, a global crisis and, 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 and potentially global war. Um, and this is um, terrifying. And, um, and I, I see that this, you know, our efforts in information literacy have never been needed more. I want our kids to recognize that um, we evaluate sources not by staying inside the source and looking at closely, but to see where it where it sits in the context of other pieces of information. That um, information comes in so many on on so many platforms and in so many formats, and and I think that as as educators over the last I don't know twenty years, in some ways we've demonized information. Um, if uh, we've done some source shaming, uh, and and uh, you know, I think that one of the forward-thinking documents, in addition to our own standards, is the ACRL framework, um, which tells us that there is a contextual nature to information. Um, it's not just content; it's context, and there are moments in in students' um, inquiry efforts that tweets make so much more sense than anything else. Um, uh, in fact, way back in um, you know, Arab Spring, my kids discovered um, a student who was their age in Egypt with whom they were talking about the, the uprising. And uh, they learned so much more than they could have from the newspapers uh, or any of the media out there. Uh, and, and we're seeing that today in terms of what's happening in Ukraine. We're seeing propaganda going on on both sides. But uh, I was sharing with you the other day um, how I was digging in with my students into um, the Russian propaganda machine. And um, we were seeing some really powerful stuff coming out there. There is this cartoon that I, I know is shown widely to elementary students in Russia, portraying uh, Ukraine as the aggressor in the war, using children with t-shirts representing Ukraine, Russia, 
and the United States and, and uh, portraying the, the United States and Ukraine as the bullies. And, and this sort of thing is powerful propaganda. Having our own students look at material like that could be re really powerful. And yet when I see us using examples like uh, uh, the kinds of hoax websites that we were using years ago, I don't know why anybody would do that when we have so many authentic examples of what, uh, what misinformation looks like. Um, and also, you know, there is also the opportunity to do all sorts of authentic um, examinations. For instance, if we're looking at Wikipedia articles, we can look at Wikipedia articles written in Russian and translate them into English and see what, what message on the same topic is being presented um, by two different perspectives or many different perspectives. We can curate news sources. So students are not only reading the one news source or the one media outlet that perhaps their parents watch, but but so they can look at Pravda as a print, you know, as a digital source or DOS, um, and they can look at Radio Free Europe. Um, there's so many options that is, they're not the first options that pop into a kid's mind, but they're like, really, they, they open new worlds of what information might look like. And um, it just, there's, there's also this, like the excitement in types of um, sources that we've also shamed like Wikipedia, for instance, mm -hmm. during the pandemic, scientists were vetting the information on the disease that were, was, that were that was coming into Wikipedia and using it as a hub for their own research. Um, and, and so there's been there, it, it, if we look at Wikipedia articles on the article level, rather than the whole notion of it's Wikipedia, it stinks. Um, it's more like, when do we use Wikipedia and how we use it rather than whether to use it or not. It is, it is a given and it has great value. And with the addition a couple of years back of controlled digital lending, it not only has links to articles, but it has links to all the books Internet Archive has digitized that are available on controlled digital lending. So when you're doing a project on Alexander Hamilton, for instance, you're not only getting the, the kind of tertiary source that's Wikipedia, but if you go into the, into the sources, you're getting the Chernow book on which the musical was based. So you're getting a full chunky biography of Hamilton reading the three pages in, into which the site, the particular little piece of fact that you're looking for was written. You're actually looking at it in the context of the book immediately. I'm sorry, I've been babbling a lot. No, um, I love that. I wrote, I've been taking so many notes and I'm sure all the listeners are too. I just saw Hamilton last week. And so I've been reading a lot about uh, just his life and his wife's life as well. And so I didn't know that. So I'm so glad that you shared that. Thank you. Thank you. So um, those are some of the things I'm thinking about. Um, what else should we talk about? <laughs> I love that though. I think this is such, you know, today when I was, I'm, I'm on summer break already. And so, you know, you always think about 
all these things that you want to do in the summer, you know, you don't have kids, like, what do you want to work on? And so I have all these projects all over my desk and this year, it just feels different. It feels like we all need kind of time to reflect and kind of a break. Like I feel like that we have never felt before. And so I love these topics that you bring up because they are big things that we all need to think about. And there are things that we want to make sure that we go back in the fall and that we are not only addressing, but there's so many different things now on how we do things, how we embed ourselves, how we get information to our students, how we interact with our families. We think about book bands and all of the things that are going on within our world. And there's a lot. And so bringing these things to mind, you know, at the beginning of our summer is a great thing because we have time to really kind of dig in ourselves and just reflect and think about these and to celebrate the things that we can do as librarians. You said in the beginning, I love the term embedded librarian because think that really more so than ever really encompasses like what we do as librarians and, and all the, all the ways that we can connect. Yeah. I, I, I think we, we've set up some pretty impressive um, kind of digital infrastructure um, that has connected schools in ways that we weren't previously connected. We had to do it in a hurry but we've set some some avenues out for communication that we didn't have before. And, yeah. and so that's pretty lovely. I think that, you know, over the summer, I, you know, we all deserve a big break. <laughs> and I, I was, when I started talking to you about what we should talk about today, um, I mentioned that I've been pretty addicted to Ted Lasso. And I was... Um, I saw there was a, a feature on uh, CBS's Sunday morning about it and the character of Rebecca, um, and I, I will look up the name of the, the actress because I don't remember it immediately, but they, they asked her why, um, why the show was so successful. Um, and as everybody says about that show, it's not really about soccer. Um, it's about good people doing good things um, it's about kindness. And she felt that during the pandemic, it, it presented one big hug. Um, and I, I felt that way as I watched that show, but I was also thinking about um, our friends who have worked doubly hard over these last two years and continue to. And I suspect that even though we might be taking a break over the summer, uh, we'll be adding to our websites and uh, we'll be looking for new books among the rich new books that are being published. And I, that's a celebration, seeing new diversity in the books and the languages and, and books that welcome new neighbors to our country and all of that. But I also think that in addition to all the prep work we do, I mean, if, if we can end this talk with a big hug and a big thank you to our colleagues um, who have been absolutely extraordinary over these last two and a half years and who continue um, those efforts in holding schools together, in helping families, in identifying children who have 
who have needs that may not everybody might not pick pick up. Um, these are heroic efforts, and I, I, if I could, really hug everybody, including my students who are, are newly out there. I would do that. Um, that. And, and I want to hug you, my dear friend, for, for pulling this together and, and for, for, for giving so many gifts out there to the profession. Thank you. I think that's the perfect way to end the conversation. And when Joyce told me about, she had shown me the clip and we'll make sure to include that in the notes also from the podcast, because it's a great interview. And I love that because I think that's where we need to just end our school year into the summer and just remember that we're part of a, this great community and we're, we're super lucky to be part of that. Think of all the gifts that we have. <laughs> Thanks. I will share the link to the presentation if that helps also. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And, and I want to also shout out to Future Ready who have, you know, just sponsored all of this great stuff, the webinars, um, the blog the templates, the website, and just reaching across the educational community. Cause sometimes we only talk to ourselves. And I, I, I love that future ready is a network of educators of, of, of all sorts. Yeah. Yes, me too. I know we're, we're super blessed to have so many great voices and it's going to be another great year next year. And so I, really like a sense this is the last one too of season four and we're going into the summer <clears throat> just want to tell everybody to to enjoy your summer and take time for yourselves and like Joyce said you know think of all the things that Joyce has shared with us today and that we've learned together through future ready because I think that's the really neat thing about the community that we have you know, when I became a librarian, well, almost 20 years ago, I think it's 16 years this year. And I think about being with you in the fall, like that's, I left that feeling that way. And so I want everybody to feel that way too. Love you, honey. I, I love you too, honey. So you guys, this was so great. I can't think of a better way just to wrap up season four and to wrap up the work that we've done around our future ready librarian podcast and all the great things that we have had. And we're going to just remember, we'll share all of the resources and we're also going to share Joyce's information, but Joyce, maybe you can tell people where to find you online. Well, you can follow me at, uh, at Joyce Valenza on Twitter. I haven't been as active as I used to be, but I will be starting in the summer. Um, and my blog is on hiatus right now. I'm taking a little break from that. So um, email me, JoyceValenza at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter. Great. That will be awesome. And you'll also be able to find a certificate of professional development that you can download and fill out to use as well. As always, thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Future Ready Librarian podcast series, Leading from the Library. And a very special thank you to our sponsors, Follett. You make a difference in our library, schools, and within our lives, and that of our students every day. We appreciate everything that you do. I hope you can take what you learned in today's podcast and in season four and put it to use within your practice as a future ready librarian. Until next time, friends, keep finding ways to lead within and from your library.